Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Jennifer Gratz was a white Michigan resident who applied for admission to her state's flagship university back in 1995. When she was denied admission to its College of Literature, Science, and Arts, she then sued the university and its president. She argued that the university's race-conscious admissions program violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The admissions program at the University of Michigan changed over the years, but by the time her case was consolidated with another and went before the Supreme Court, the College of Literature, Science, and Arts used a points-based system where an applicant needed at least 100 points to guarantee admission to the college. Applicants were awarded points for things like their GPA and test scores and community involvement, and then members of minority racial groups were automatically awarded an additional 20 points an advantage in the admissions process that white students weren't afforded. At the exact same time, the court heard a challenge to the slightly different admissions program at the university's law school. Barbara Gruder was a white Michigan resident with a 3.8 GPA and a 161 LSAT score who was denied admission to the university's highly ranked law school. She also sued the university and its president and argued that she was disadvantaged in the admissions process because of her race, violation of the Civil Rights Act and the Constitution, she claimed. When the court was hearing these cases, Lee Bollinger was the president of the University of Michigan, and these cases bear his name. In the 2003 cases of Gratz v. Bollinger and Gruder v. Bollinger, the Supreme Court revisited its precedents about race and university admissions and concluded that the undergraduate admissions program at Michigan was unconstitutional and that it violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, but that the law school admissions program was not. What explains the relevant difference here? Cynically, we might say that Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Stephen Breyer explain that difference. In the case of Jennifer Gratz, O'Connor and Breyer sided with the court's conservatives to say that the undergraduate admissions policy was unconstitutional. In the case of Barbara Gruder, O'Connor and Breyer then sided with the liberal justices to say that the law school's admissions policy was fine and could stand. In each case, there was a 6-3 majority on the court, but the majority was different in each case. Less cynically, we could say that there's some nuance that might help account for these different outcomes. Recall the landmark case of the University of California versus Bakke in 1978. Justice Powell in that case said that in equal protection analysis, we must ask whether the government is treating people differently based on a suspect classification. And race historically has been the paradigmatic example of a suspect classification. If government policy is based on such a suspect classification, then the court will ask whether the government nonetheless has a compelling interest in classifying people based on race. And then the court will ask whether the policy is narrowly tailored to achieve that compelling interest. Powell then said that a university has a compelling interest in maintaining a diverse student body, but that an admissions policy that operates as a racial quota system is not narrowly tailored. Instead, a university must evaluate each application in a holistic way that does not insulate any applicants from competition with the full applicant pool. Powell says in that kind of a system, a university may take race into account as a plus factor in a candidate's application, and that would, he thinks, be narrowly tailored to achieve the university's compelling interest. 
Taking that framework and applying it to these two different cases, then, we might conclude that the undergraduate program and awarding a specific and significant number of points in a points-based admissions program to some applications for no other reason than the applicant's race was not a narrowly tailored plan, and it operated in ways that were analogous to a quota system. The law school, on the other hand, didn't have any kind of rigid quantitative system in place. They evaluated each application individually and took race into account when doing so. Now, that analysis leaves things pretty murky still. The liberal and conservative wings of the court presented clearer alternatives. Liberals such as Justice Ginsburg would have upheld both programs as necessary to promote racial equity. In her dissent in Gratz, Ginsburg wrote that the stain of generations of racial oppression is still visible in our society, and the determination to hasten its removal remains vital. One can reasonably anticipate, therefore, that colleges and universities will seek to maintain their minority enrollment, she said, and the networks and opportunities thereby opened to minority graduates, whether or not they can do so in full candor through adoption of affirmative action plans of the kind here at issue. And Gidsberg went on to say that she would prefer to allow universities to be candid and forthcoming in the way that they will inevitably use race and admissions to increase minority enrollments, and for that reason she would have upheld both of these programs. The court's conservatives, on the other hand, think it's always problematic to classify applicants based on race and to treat them differently. Justice Thomas, dissenting in Grutter, wrote that the Constitution abhors classifications based on race, not only because those classifications can harm favored races or are based on illegitimate motives, but also because every time the government places citizens on racial registers and makes race relevant to the provision of burdens or benefits, it demeans us all. Now, there's one other important aspect of these decisions. They came exactly 25 years after California versus Bakke, and Justice O'Connor, in her majority opinion, made this prediction about the next 25 years. Now, we are mindful that a core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to do away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. Accordingly, race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. Enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences would offend this fundamental equal protection principle. We we see no reason to exempt race-conscious admissions programs from the requirement that all governmental uses of race must have a logical endpoint. We take the law school at its word that it would like nothing better than to find a race-neutral admissions formula and will terminate its race-conscious admissions program as soon as practicable. It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first suggested approval of the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity in the context of higher education. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest that we approve today. Responding to Justice O'Connor's prediction that in 25 years, now just around the corner in the year 2028, there'll be no need for racially conscious admissions programs, Justice Thomas wrote in his dissent, I agree with the court's holding that racial discrimination in higher education will be illegal in 25 years. I respectfully dissent from the remainder of the court's opinion and the judgment, however, because I believe that the law school's current use of race violates the Equal Protection Clause and that the Constitution means the same thing today as it will in 300 months. 
It's now been 214 months since that opinion was announced in the summer of 2003. And judging by the last year that we've had, we don't seem to be approaching anywhere close to a time when race would be simply irrelevant or unimportant in American social life. The question, with us at least since Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, is whether race should nonetheless be constitutionally irrelevant. Whether the Constitution is colorblind, as he said. And even if so, whether that represents an aspiration to be approximated over time rather than a legal norm to be enforced now. Our case law offers no clear answer to that question. Our justices are as divided as our society, and the core meaning of equality and equal protection remains one of the main constitutional debates of our time.